0: One of the most popular TV programs in the UK is the program Silent Witness. It's, it's, so, so, put your hand up if you, if you know Silent Witness, if you've seen that, yeah, okay. It runs, it's been running since 1996. It's had 26 series, Silent Witness. Uh, Silent Witness details the work of forensic scientists. And these forensic scientists find that, often in a criminal case, often the deceased corpse is the most important witness may not be a verbal witness, but it is a very important witness. A a body can tell you something of how and why a death occurred. A post-mortem can tell you a lot. Today, um, we're starting a series in the book of One Kings. Now, I don't know how you felt when you heard that announced, One Kings? Maybe inwardly you groaned. Really? Well, as we begin, can I encourage you to look at this book of Kings as as something of a post-mortem and the author as a forensic scientist. You see, the story of one Kings begins with a healthy, glorious kingdom, the kingdom of Solomon. That's where the story begins in one Kings. But the story ends in two Kings with a, a nation, dead and buried effectively, in exile. This book then tells us how this great spiritual decline occurred. Friends, far from being distant and irrelevant, this book really is most vital for us. See, it's going to tell us how Israel got into such a mess. It's going to give us new perspectives on our tendencies, on our failures and our sin. And we'll also get a sense of it as we read it, of of what we need, of what we need the saviour to be for us, you see. So then today is episode one. Episode one, The Kingdom Torn in Two. The Kingdom Torn in Two. Um, As we all know, this weekend we've been celebrating the coronation of King Charles III. I want you to imagine that, um, let's say, uh, King Charles, there's a big coronation celebration, he's crowned, but imagine that over the course of this weekend, the UK government announced that they decided that actually all of this, well, it hadn't gone terribly well. And uh, the UK government announced that they were going to tear up the UK. That's it. Well, I think we're, we're done with this. We'll get rid of the monarchy. And we'll just split up. No, england Scotland, got tear it up. Imagine the UK government announced that by 2024, the United Kingdom
1: would be no more. Would you believe them? Would you believe it? You wouldn't, would you? They can't, they can't do that. They're not going to do that.
0: You would ignore them, wouldn't you? Well, look, in today's passage, God says, I'm going to tear a nation in two. I'm going to break it apart. And Solomon and his son ignore it. They don't believe it. God makes a promise about
1: the future. I'm going to tear the kingdom in two. They ignore it. Now, this is going to be a big theme in the book of Kings.
0: It's called the book of one Kings and two Kings, isn't it? Um... If it were up to me, I might adjust that in my Bible (laughs) and call them the book of the kings versus the prophets. The kings versus the prophets of the word of God because this is what it's going to come to again, time and time again. God's word is proclaimed and the kings are going to rebel against it. And such could be our problem. So let's look then at this post-mortem. Let's look at this diagnosis and let's learn from it. First thing to notice in our passage is that Solomon rejects God's word. First thing to see, Solomon rejects God's word. Um, King Solomon's story, I don't know whether you know it, is something of a tragic one. There was the great King David, and he finally settled the promised land. And Solomon became king after him. And he built the temple, and he loved God just like his father had done. And Solomon was asked by God, is there anything you'd like? He was given one wish. And Solomon said, I'd like wisdom. And God said, okay, I'll give you wisdom. And with that wisdom, Solomon ruled well. He completed huge building projects. There was peace. There was great relationships in the world. The economy absolutely flourished. And God's kingdom became like a little slice of heaven on earth. Solomon was this king who had wisdom to make efficient, successful choices. Trouble was, they weren't always godly choices. See, while Solomon had wisdom, he didn't always have wise character. So the seeds of spiritual decline were sown in the midst of his great successes. Solomon married lots of foreign princesses. You can see that in the context of chapter 11. And that was a great idea for foreign diplomacy. He was making relationships with lots of countries, marrying their princesses. The trouble was (laughs) that when you marry foreign princesses and bring them into your country, you have to build them places to worship their foreign gods. And so while Solomon had built a temple for the worship of the one true God, next door to it, he was building lots of little temples to foreign gods. And it turned his heart away from the one true God, and it turned the nation away from the one true God. And so God spoke in judgment. Just see over the page, page 292, how God spoke to him. 11 verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, Solomon, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Do you see? Here's God's word for the future. Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you and give it to a servant. This is God's promise. It's what's going to happen. Now, you can imagine what Solomon might be thinking at this point. He might be thinking, yeah, but I've made
1: everything happen. In my wisdom, everything's gone well.
0: Maybe he thinks he can get away with Fixing this problem too, what God has said. God sends adversaries and eventually he sends Jeroboam and that's at the beginning of our passage. Look at verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeredar, a servant of Solomon, whose name was Zeruah, a widow, also
1: lifted up his hand against the king. We're introduced to a guy called Jeroboam and he's described as what? A servant. God said,
0: I'm going to tear the kingdom from Solomon and give it to a servant. Well, guess what? What God said is happening. Here's a servant. And this guy, Jeroboam, he turns out to be a good guy. He does really well. He becomes the first minister of industry. He's in the cabinet, effectively, running
1: Solomon's building projects. But on one day, he meets a prophet. He meets the prophet Ahijah,
0: Ahijah from Shiloh. Now, this is really important because here again we see the word of the Lord. Jeroboam is on his way, and he bumps into this guy, a he A is wearing a nice, trendy shirt. Probably not a TK Maxx job. He's got his new Ben Sherman on, or uh, whatever it is. Right? A hija bumps into Jeroboam, and immediately a tears his garment. Now, this isn't. Don't think this is um, incredible Hulk, but don't think this is an accidental splitting of the trousers either. A hija takes off his shirt and deliberately tears it, and you can almost see him tear one. Two, three, four, five. He tears ten pieces and, an, and one more. And Ahijah gives Jeroboam, this cabinet minister, he gives him ten bits of his shirt. And he keeps one for the family line of Solomon. This is a symbolic act. Just like God said the kingdom would be given to a servant. Well, here Ahijah's confirming it, isn't he? He's saying, ten pieces, of my, these are the ten kingdoms you're going to have. Just like you've got 10 bits of my shirt, God says you're going to have these 10 kingdoms, Jeroboam. The nation's going to be torn apart. It's what is sometimes called a prophetic sign act. It's a visual aid for God's word. God said he was going to give the kingdom to a servant, Jeroboam, and you only needed to bump into him and meet him and say, Jeroboam, what have you got in his pocket? (laughs) Pull out the 10 pieces.
1: Oh, it's true. God is going to give you uh, half the kingdom. There could be no doubt then what God would do,
0: what God had said he would do. See, Solomon's idolatry, verse 33, would lead to the kingdom being torn in two, verse 36. God was saying very, 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 very clearly. Things are going to change around here. Solomon's kingdom is going to be torn away from him. And I should say, this should be especially clear for Solomon. Here's a Bible trivia question for you. Does anyone know the last time in the Bible a garment gets
1: torn? don't know the last time in the Bible a garment gets torn? Yeah, the Joseph is definitely one, isn't it? But there's one that comes
0: since then. Um, the last time we see a garment being torn in the Bible is with King Saul. King Saul tears Samuel's garment, and Samuel turns to him and says, just as you've torn my garment, the kingdom's going to be torn from you, Saul. You see, Solomon should know exactly what this symbolic act means. It should be clear to him, just as the kingdom was torn from Saul and given to David, so the kingdom will be torn from Solomon and his son and given to Jeroboam. And it's especially clear because this Jeroboam, he seems like a kind of David figure. (laughs) Jeroboam, he's honorable like David was. He meets a man from Shiloh like David did. He gets promises from God like David did. He looks like a new king, doesn't he? He even gets hunted just like David
1: did. God is saying, I'm changing things. There's going to be a new rule. It's unmistakable. Just as the the
0: kingdom of God got twisted to idols under Solomon, now there's going to be another twist, a new David who's going to undo
1: all that David and Solomon achieved. That's God's word about the future. It's clear. The kingdom's going to be torn.
0: Now notice what Solomon does with it. Look, verse 40, following immediately off the back of Ahijah's word. Verse 40, Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. God had spoken. The king was going to be torn, and Solomon stands against it. This is the final note on King Solomon's life. He had been so wise, now seems a complete
1: fool. He's standing against God's word. My servant's going to take my kingdom, is he? Well, I'll kill him then, says Solomon. He thinks he can foil God's future and he stands against God's
0: word. You can see how easy it was for Solomon to fall into that way of thinking. He'd achieved so much, he'd done so much, the world seemed in his control, and so he thinks, well, I, I, I can be in control of the future too, I can kill Jeroboam. He who came, who, he who'd been given, God-given wisdom, came to depend on his wisdom more than the God who gave him the wisdom in the first place. He fell for that age-old error that we suppose that we're in control. We see our influence and our ability and our power in the present, and we think, if I'm in control now, I can always be in control.
1: We think we're in control of the, of the future, and God isn't, and his word doesn't matter. I wonder if you catch yourself thinking that.
0: I'd like to speak to you this morning, if, uh, if you're a bit like that. <laughs> Maybe you're here this morning, and, and you're the kind of person who, who, who thinks of most of your life, I'm in control. You're a competent person. Maybe you're the kind of person who can make a cafe run. You're competent. Maybe you can manage patient care plans. Maybe you can implement a school syllabus for 20, 30, 100 kids. Maybe you can make a podcast happen. Maybe you can make a nice cup of tea. You're competent. You're in control. You can do these things, right? Maybe you manage three Zoom calls in one day or manage a site of lads, a building site. We tell ourselves, don't we, so often, I'm in control. And the trouble is, the more that we think we're in control, like Solomon, the less we think of God's word and his word about the future. The more we become dismissive of God's word. Jesus says he is coming
1: back, and we think to himself, um, no. Oh, I've got deadlines next week, no. no. Going out with Jean next Wednesday, no. We live as if it isn't true. Because I'm in control, and my agenda is what's,
0: what's big here. Jesus says a day of judgment is coming. We say, but the big judgment is,
1: is my big project. That can't be true. I, I, I'm in control. This, this is what's going on, really, good. Jesus says, I'm the only rescuer
0: of what is coming ahead. The one who really guarantees a secure future. And we say,
1: no, 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 but I'm, I'm filling up my pension pot. and I'm just focused on doing the, the good life, and that, that can't be the main thing that matters. You see, we might not stand in direct rebellion against God, but we can be dismissive of God's word just as easily, can't we? What's the antidote to this? What is the antidote to this? I think it's seeing the foolishness of that. I think it's taking note
0: of this post-mortem here. Solomon tried to foil God's future. He thought he was in control. But all he did was end up sending Jeroboam up to Egypt From whence Jeroboam would come later and God's plans would still be achieved. See, God is in control. God is in control of the future. His words about the future really are true. No matter what we think of our control and our competency, God is in control. Solomon rejected God's word. And notice number two, so does his son. So point number two Rehoboam rejects God's word. This is in chapter 12. Rehoboam rejects God's word. Solomon dies, and his son replaces him, and we see in those early verses he's made king in a place called Shechem, 12 verse 1. But while Solomon was wise, the son that follows him definitely isn't. Uh, Rehoboam, I think, as we'll see, is, is basically a, a moron. If I can say that in the pulpit, he is... Well, you'll see. Um He's like this. Imagine King Charles, uh, let's come back to him. Um, imagine King Charles has had this weekend. It's been you know, brilliant as far as, he, as far as it goes. And he goes on his coronation tour. Imagine King Charles, he goes to visit industrial places around the UK. He visits the teacher's strikes and the doctor's strikes. And he says to them, he says, um, Frankly, I think you lot are overpaid. And uh, no, no I, I, frankly, pay cut would be in order here. You lot need a firm hand. Imagine Charles goes to um, Scotland, and he says, "This Scottish parliament is not as good as Westminster. I think we should close that, and let's take the North Sea oil back. I'll, I'll talk to the PM later, and we'll stop this Gaelic stuff as well." Imagine Prince Charles did that. Imagine he went to Belfast and said, "Let's not t- sort out the EU and the border, and
1: nah, let's not bother."
0: And he went to Wales, and you can see where I'm going, right? That would be totally stupid, wouldn't it? <laughs> Becoming king he would then tear the country apart, wouldn't he? He went and did that. This is what we see in Solomon's son. Follow what's going on. Um, chapter 12, verse 1, there's, um, there's a bit of an industrial dispute going on. And so Jeroboam, that um, former minister of trade, the servant, comes back. And all Israel comes to the king, in verse 4, and says, look, Solomon gave us conscripted labor. It's been really, really hard. Rehoboam, will you be the one who treats us kindly? Will you lighten the load? Rehoboam says, all right, give me three days, I'll take some counsel. So so far, so good. First, Rehoboam goes to speak to the old guys, the old council. He says to them, look, what am I going to say to the people? What am I going to say to the unions? And you see the advice he gets in verse 7. They say to him, if you'll be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever.
1: The old guard have clearly got some of Solomon's wisdom. They say, look, make some concessions here, and the complaints will go away.
0: Lead like a servant, and you'll have a servant-hearted people. It's Very biblical, isn't it? it? Sounds almost like the word of God. In fact, the word of Deuteronomy 17 to kings says
1: kings shouldn't lift up their hearts against their people. They should love them and care for them. It's pretty good advice. Be kind to your people.
0: Rehoboam doesn't like that advice. That's the problem. And so he takes another sounding, he abandons all that, he goes to talk to his young mates who are the same age as him, with the same experience as him. And they think, no, 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 don't be gentle, Rehoboam, lead with force. Don't give them concessions, give them cruelty, only then will they follow you. Don't mince your words, intimidate them, that'll impress them. Look at verses 10 to 11. The young men who'd grown up with Rehoboam said to him, thus shall you speak to this people, Who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips,
1: but I will discipline you with scorpions. They say, be cruel, Rehoboam. Be cruel. Use slogans. And
0: the ESV Bible translators are actually quite kind to us here. They try and spare our blushes. The young men say... Um, say this Rehoboam, my, not really little finger, uh, my little thing is thicker than my father's loins. I take it you know what that means. Dad used whips. I'm the big man. I'll give you scorpions. I'm going to be a big man. I'm going to crush you. That's the advice he's given. (laughs) Rehoboam comes across as a crass, crude, lout of a man. As far as I can see, the a pleb at the front of a band of jobs. It's awful. One commentator puts it like this. He says that this king and his young counsellors would have made pretty good applicants to Hitler youth if they hadn't been so old, such is their cruelty and stupidity. See, here's Rehoboam. And whether he knows it or not, he rejects God's word. He rejects Jeroboam, who God, God said he's going to have the kingdom. He rejects the wisdom and what it means to be a king. He rejects Ahijah's prophecy that the kingdom would be torn apart. He thinks, I'm going to hold this nation together with my cruelty and with my threats and my bullying. It feels like stupidity reigns, doesn't it? I spoke a few moments ago to those who feel they're in control. Some of us feel like the future is in our hands. But others of us live in this world and we feel like stupidity reigns, don't we? We feel like the world ticks to absolute mayhem and chaos. We watch the news and we see the politicians and we think stupidity reigns. Stupidity is running
1: wild. What does it matter what God says about the future when everything just turns out as mayhem? Friends, I wonder if you've realized what that does to us.
0: The tendency is to think stupidity reigns. And if we think that, it's going to taper down and taper back our belief in God's future, isn't it? In God's control. And God says, I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to set it right. And we think, really? Stupidity reigns. That thought is going to curb our zeal as well. Why does it matter about me loving my neighbor? Why does it matter about me serving God in my nine to five when stupidity reigns? What's going to happen to my love for the lost? And my desire to share the good news. It's going to be added
1: to the pile of things that say, don't make a difference because stupidity reigns. You see? We're going to take God's word
0: less and less seriously. If we think we're in control, we'll take God's word less seriously. But if we think the world is just mayhem and chaos, we'll take God's word less seriously as well, won't we? The more we think of our control, the more we think of the reign of stupidity, we'll care
1: less for God Unless for his word about the future. Because we'll think it doesn't matter very much. But again, look what we must see. We're reminded that, though it looks like stupidity reigns, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. You
0: see, these big boys and their cruel plans, it turns out, will be little servants of Almighty God.
1: They are not in control. Stupidity does not run wild. God is in control.
0: The stupid stuff happens. The slogans come out. The king ignores the complaints. The industrial dispute goes badly. But what's going on really? Look at verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people and their complaint because it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. It all happened according to God's plans and God's purposes. Stupidity, friends, is on a leash. Solomon and his cruel plans, Rehoboam and his cruel actions, they were human beings doing free things. They were doing what they wanted to do. It wasn't the whole story. God is at work. God is in control. So what looked like the rule of idiots had a twist in the tail. It was a turn of affairs the Lord used. You know, no matter who appears to wield power in the present, God's word about the future will happen. God is in control, even when he uses human actors, as he does here, to tear this kingdom apart. There's a warning here to us, friends, isn't there? Not to reject the word of God, not to think less of God's promises about the future.
1: It's tempting to think, isn't it, that because God is invisible, that God is not in situ and in control. But he is. I wonder if you ever do um, jigsaw puzzles, um, I expect some of you are, a
0: room of this size, a few of us like the odd jigsaw. Or whether you've ever done jigsaw puzzles with children, you normally start with a very simple jigsaw puzzle with kids, don't you? Probably one that just has two pieces that kind of simply plug
1: together. Friends, often what we do in the world is that we see our bit of the jigsaw. We see what we're in control
0: of, we see what the human powers are doing, and we think this is the story. But we're only looking at one bit of the jigsaw. (laughs) Because you see, the other piece is God and his word. And his word about the future. And it turns out the other piece is
1: decisive. The other piece completes the picture that we can't see. So what I want to remind us of, friends, is that when we look at the world, we're only holding
0: one piece of the puzzle. So we need to have humility. And we need to trust in God's word and get that other piece of the puzzle, as it were, and put it together and remember that God's in control. His word about the future is
1: sure. See, God's word is rejected here because Solomon trusts himself. God's word is rejected and Solomon and
0: stupidity seems to reign, but it doesn't. God's word about the future is sure. And we see that because thirdly, and I'll try and be brief here, God splits the kingdom after all. Point number three, God splits the kingdom after all. You can see that chapter 12 and verse 16 onwards. Um, The industrial dispute here doesn't go well. And the northern tribes go home and they think, why are we involved in these kings of the south, these kings of David? Um, what we'll do then is, guys, everyone go home. We'll just have a sit-down protest. We're, just, we're not working with these guys anymore. Now, Rehoboam and his stupidity, surprise, surprise, continues. <laughs> and he thinks, okay, let's have a bit more um, intimidation. And he takes a guy called Adaram, You see that in verse 18. Uh, Adoram had been uh, the slave master. They think, I'll take Adoram up to see them. They'll be scared of him. He's the slave master. Rehoboam has not got the strength of feeling. Adoram gets stoned to death. And look at verse 18. um, Rehoboam barely survives with his life. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. The king almost dies. And the author describes the outcome. Look 12 verse 19. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Do you see, the kingdom was torn in two, just as God had said. Jeroboam, king in the north with 10 tribes. Jeroboam left with only one other tribe with him in the south, Judah and Benjamin. See, God said, this is what is going to happen.
1: And it happened, didn't it? God's word about the future was sure. It all happened as he said it would. Now, Rehoboam
0: doesn't go down without a fight. You see in these last few verses here, just over the page, isn't it? Um, verse 21, he decides he'll get an army, an army of 180,000 people, and he'll go up and he'll, um, he'll sort out those northern tribes. He's off to bring war and massacre. But look what happens, and this is key for us as we bring everything together. Look at verse 22. But the word of God came to Shemaiah. Look, there you go. Another prophet again. The kings versus the prophets. Yeah. The word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me, says the Lord. And the big surprise, I think, comes after that. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Finally, in this passage, someone actually does something wise. Finally, someone listens to God's word and believes it. Rehoboam, go home. He does. The Lord says, I've done this. This is from me. Go home. And they do. Finally, someone acknowledges that God's in control and listens to him. And I think that's where the challenge of this passage comes home, isn't it? Will we listen to God's word about the future? Will we take God's word about the future seriously? Will we listen to him and his promises and what he said will happen? Today, I pray, has been a challenge for us to do just that to take God's word about the future seriously. How much, ask yourself this, how much do I believe that God really is in control and in control of the future? Can you see how what you think of God's control affects how you treat his word and his promises? Can you see that? The less I think of God's control of the future, the less I'll think of God's word about the future. Can you see that? Ask yourself this, where in my life right now
1: do I minimize the thought that God's in control? About the shops? Not thinking about God's plans and purposes. Where in your life does God's control not seem so important?
0: Where does trusting his word seem not so important? God is in control, even, even here, as he tears the kingdom apart. We started out noticing um, in an imaginary situation, what happened if the government said, I'm going to tear the UK apart? And we all said we couldn't believe that. That's an outrageous thing to say, an outrageous promise to make about the future. And you might have felt like that about God. God couldn't tear this kingdom up because God needs us. He needs the kingdom. He needs the, he needs the humanity he's made. He needs his creatures. He needs the church. God could never, never tear it up. He can never bring judgment. Friends, I want us to see at the end here, he
1: doesn't need the 12 tribes of Israel. He doesn't need a gold-plated temple. He doesn't need Grace Church. He doesn't need the FIEC or Hillsong or the Church of England or the Evangelical Alliance. All God needs is to speak his word and to be true to it,
0: to be who he is. See, God is in control here as he tears the kingdom apart, but that's not the only thing he said, and that's not the only thing he's about. God is keeping his promises. I don't know whether you spotted this. God tears the kingdom apart, but he doesn't destroy it completely, does he? He leaves a king in the line of David. He leaves the way open for his promises of rescue to come. He leaves the one for a new king in the line of David, a saviour,
1: a new Adam, a new king. Out of the ashes of this mess will be the new king, the Lord Jesus. And he will be torn apart. He will be torn apart for all the sin and mess
0: that leads to this sort of brokenness. He will be torn apart. He'll go to the cross.
1: And people didn't believe it then, did they? People didn't believe God's in control at that moment. But it was as God had promised
0: just as heaven and earth have been ripped apart by our sin, so Jesus would be ripped apart of the cross, that he might bring, bring us back to God, that sin and death might be done away with. God is in control. Even as he tears the kingdom apart here, even as wicked men would tear his son apart, God really is in control, and his words about the future are
1: true. Just go to Easter Sunday morning. They're true. No one thought it, but they are. See, God may tear some things up. God may break up churches and ministries. God has
0: said that only through much tribulation will we get to the kingdom of God. But he is still in control, friends. And regardless of whether we think we're in control or someone else's, no, God is in control. His word is still to be believed and listened to and followed. And the question here is,
1: will we? Will we trust in God's final words about the future? It's here in this post-mortem. It's significant here. It's significant for us. God's words about the future are true both in judgment and in rescue. He keeps his promises. Will you believe him? Should we pray about that? Our gracious Father in heaven. Uh, We come before you and we want to ask your forgiveness.
0: Uh, We want to say sorry for how sometimes we've just thought more of our control and less of your control. We've thought more about our
1: ideas about the future and less about your words and your promises about the future. Father, forgive us. Father, we want to ask your forgiveness for where we have just thought and believed that
0: all in this world is chaos and mayhem. Where we have thought that stupidity reigns.
1: Father, thank you for showing us today that that is just not true. You're in control. Father, forgive us this day. And Father, help us to see that in and through the
0: myriad of our experiences this day, you have made promises about the future and you
1: are bringing them to bear. You have said that your kingdom will prevail so, Father, help us to hold on tightly to your precious word.
0: Help us to believe all that you have said about the future, all you've said about judgment, but all you've said about rescue, and all
1: you've said about who you are. Help us to lean into who you are. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.